the thing that I've realized I like about competitiveness is that yes, it's fun to to beat other people in a in a soccer game, and that's like one measure. But the the real thing that's rewarding is continuously getting better at something or continuously working at something and putting in this work and seeing what the seeing what the outputs are and continuing to to try to do better. And even now, I think I'm like hopefully not at a permanent stage where I'm going backwards, but like recovering from an injury and I'm, you know, I'm not running any of the same speeds that I have run in the past, but I'm, I'm working at it and I find it really rewarding to be better than I was last week. What's up, everyone? That was Lighty Klotz. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. This week's conversation is a little different from the ones that I usually have for the show. It's with Lighty Klotz, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, and he studies how we transform things from how they are to how we want them to be. He's the author of the book Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, which is the spark that set off this conversation, and he's also a runner himself. In this episode, we talked about Lighty's relationship to running and the place that it holds in his life before getting into a discussion about subtraction and why it often gets neglected in favor of addition in so many aspects of our lives, including running. We talked about subtraction as it relates to coaching, how to overcome our instinct to add to things all the time, looking at life through an editor's lens, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to be in Boston and host a Shakeout run and live podcast with Bill Rogers at the Track House, and the energy was off the hook. I didn't realize how much I missed the race weekend atmosphere, and it was obvious that everyone else who was there felt the same way. If you're going to be in New York this weekend for the 50th running of That City's Marathon, be sure to visit Tracksmith's pop-up experience at 1928 Broadway starting this Friday, November 5th through next Monday, November 8th to celebrate and to check out their latest NYC collection. There's nothing quite like the energy and passion of New York, and I'm bummed not to be there myself this year. From Brooklyn to First Avenue and into Central Park, the cheers are relentless, making this challenging course totally worth it. If you're not going to be in New York, go to tracksmith.com slash Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use the code Mario15 at checkout to save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. What can I say about these sunglasses? Well, not only do they look good, but they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, and most pairs come in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades that you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two, maybe three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R 
com slash M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your purchase. Your face will thank you. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with runner, professor, and author, Lighty Klotz. I'm super excited for this conversation. You're well known as a professor and an author whose work doesn't have anything to do with running, at least directly, but you are a runner and I want to start by learning more about that aspect of your life. So what place does running hold in your day-to-day right now? Uh, it keeps me sane, <laughs> as, as my wife reminds me. When I come home, and I'm, she can tell and she will make me, she'll say, go run before we interact anymore. Um, so it's just, it's it's my one of my favorite things to do. And um, other than, you know, kind of hanging out with my family and kids, it's I just love it. Um, and I played, uh, I was really serious about soccer growing up, even played professionally for a couple of years. And then after, so running has really been a big help kind of bridging from that. Um, and kind of the fastest way to get that high that you can get from the physical exertion and also just, um, a really good way to, to stay fit and to, to challenge myself. I mean, I'm obviously very, well, not obviously, but I'm, I'm a very competitive person. That's one of the things that I loved about soccer was the competition and running is nice because you can kind of channel that competition into yourself, into, you know, am I getting better at running? So I, I absolutely love it. I'm nowhere near the, the caliber runner that you are and that, you know, your audience is, but um, I, I love it as much, I think. No, I think you fit like squarely into the demographic of people who listen to the show. It's not about, you know, how fast you are, but the place that it holds in your life. And obviously, just from what you said, it holds a very important place in your life today. And, and you know, competitiveness aside, because I'm also a very competitive person, I do love to race, but I'm also a much better everything. I mean, husband, coach, um, right. writer, podcaster, human being, when I can get out and just move my body in that way for 30 minutes every day. So, I mean, I think we've probably got a lot more in common than you think. Yeah, no, and I, I that's a great point about, you know, writer. I mean, I organize the work I do around my runs. It's like, I know that after my run that I'm going to be super productive. That's my best thinking time. And I can really crank out good writing at that time. And I also know that if I need to think about something, I, I kind of seed that before I go for a run. And the running is just an amazing time for, you know, having thoughts come to mind that may not have otherwise. So, um, so it is essential to that, that part of my life too. Not just, not just keeping my wife happy, happy with my <laughs> demeanor. <laughs> you mentioned how you were a soccer player, even played professionally for a little while. Running is a big part of training for soccer, but it's it's not the only thing that you're doing, and you're probably not going to go out for a run unless you need to for conditioning purposes. But when you were a soccer player, was there anything about running, whether it was during the game itself, back and forth, which is kind of like one big fartlek session, or in the yeah. off-season when you were putting in some base miles that you really enjoyed beyond it just getting you fit for soccer? No. <laughs> not when I was playing soccer and that's honest to goodness. I mean, I, I believe it. And, uh, it was all just, uh, a means to an end. This was like, I need mm -hmm. to do this three mile run 
at whatever pace my coach said I needed to do it at so that I could be ready to perform in the soccer game. I mean, I totally saw the correlation between training and effectiveness in the games and, and not getting injured and, and these things. So, um, but I, I never said, Oh boy, it's time for the, um, it's time for the three mile run part of my training. It was always, it's okay. I got to do this three mile run part of my training. And now that that's over, I get to go do the fun part where I'm playing soccer. So it wasn't really until after playing that I like, now I would rather go for a run than play soccer, even probably cause I get injured playing soccer. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it switched after I was, after I was done playing. When you wrapped up your soccer career, how did your relationship with running start to change? Were you looking for another physical outlet since you weren't training for soccer anymore? Help me to better understand that. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not I'm not getting paid to play soccer for three hours a day anymore. So I need to. So number one, you've got a job and you've got to squeeze your workout time into less amount of time. And so running was really helpful with that uh, because for, you know, an hour's worth of running, I could stay as fit as three hours of soccer practice, basically. Um, And then, I mean, it it started with me just kind of replicating my soccer workouts. uh, Mm -hmm. And because those were the things that I was familiar with in running. And then I I moved to, oh, okay, this is this running thing. If I I want to challenge myself and see if I can do this. Uh, We we go to the beach in Ocean City, New Jersey every summer. And there's a a boardwalk there that's uh, five miles long. It's actually 4.89, but everybody thinks it's five miles. And uh, it's just like, oh, how can I run the boardwalk faster? I go there every summer and that's like kind of a measuring stick. And then you start looking at stuff on the internet and reading books and uh, even some, I just just looking at one of your posts today actually about um, kind of some of these functional movements that I can do to help with my running. So then you start studying it and you're like, oh, I can make myself faster. I'm going to try some of these other training approaches. And uh, so that's kind of how it evolved from just a, okay, this is a byproduct of playing soccer to this is something that I can um, really enjoy, but also get better at by by learning from people who who know how to do this and who have spent more time thinking about it and doing it than I have. Did it fill a competitive outlet for you or has it filled a competitive outlet for you since your soccer career has ended? Yeah, but it, and I think in a really healthy way. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, soccer because I never race. I've never once entered a running race to go against other people. I just don't see that like I don't care. I know that there's people who are faster than me, but if I'm like, "Ah, oh, I want to uh, do a half marathon in under, um, an hour and a half. And I'm just going to do that like (laughs) this Saturday or whatever. Not, I can't do it right now, but when I was trying to do that, I would be like, okay, this is the Saturday that I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go do it. And all that I care about is this, you know, this personal growth. Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter how it relates to other people. And, um, so, so yeah, I think it's certainly helped with that competitiveness and this, I mean, I, the thing I like about, the thing that I've realized I like about competitiveness is that, yes, it's fun to, to beat other people in mm-hmm. a, in a soccer game. And that's like one measure, but the, the real thing that's rewarding is continuously getting better at something or continuously working at something and putting in this work and seeing what the, seeing what the outputs are and continuing to, to try to do better. And even now I think I'm like, I'm at a, hopefully not at a permanent stage where I'm going backwards, but like recovering from an injury and I'm, you know, I'm not 
running any of the same speeds that I have run in the past, but I'm, I'm working at it and I find it really rewarding to be better than I was last week. Yeah, that totally resonates. And the reason I asked that question is because when you told that story about going to Ocean City, New Jersey and running the boardwalk and knowing what your time is for that, you know, four point nine miles or whatever it is, I'm like, you know, even if you're not someone who enters races, that's a competitive mindset. Like, you know what a good time is for you on that boardwalk. And when you go there, you're not all the time, maybe not all the time, shouldn't be all the time, trying to beat it. And I just think there's, there's something really, you know, that interesting about that way of thinking that a lot of runners listening to this can relate to in their own way. Yeah, it is funny because I'm thinking of it as totally normal that I would be like, this is our vacation every summer and like part of my vacation, the ritual of vacation involves like just absolutely destroying myself for five miles and being in so much pain for the last two miles of it coming down the back and just like all that I care and not even running against anybody and just running against the clock and trying to do a time that I think is respectable. So yeah, it's pretty funny. Does that competitive mindset permeate into other areas of your life? Yeah, again, hope. I mean, I try to make it healthy where it's competing against myself. And, and in my work, I, you know, try to line it up with things that are productive for society, right? So it's like, oh, I want to get this paper written or this book written and, and continuously going back to, okay, what are my core values? I want to be able to create knowledge and I want to be able to share knowledge that I think is going to be beneficial for the, for the world. And so, um, I mean, I guess sometimes I can make the mistake of, you know, just accomplishing something for the sake of accomplishing it. Um, whereas, but I, I do really try to kind of line up this competitive nature of making myself better and, you know, continuing to continuing to develop and grow with, developing and growing in ways that are, you know, helping society, not just, um, not just making me feel good about developing and growing. Was that seed planted early on in life or is it something that became more important to you as you got older? I would say that was after soccer. Um, so after, you know, soccer, it was the only thing I cared about growing up and I knew that it was that was going to be the only time that I could do it. And, uh, and then after soccer, I kind of did the thing where I had an engineering degree from my undergrad and went and and worked and and made money. And I was, you know, not focused on it, but just like, okay, can I figure out how to like make it in this world and have enough money to have a life and a family and stuff. Um, and then after like three years of doing that, when you don't have any you know, all, there's no summer vacation coming, <laughs> like looking around and there's 60 year olds at your job who've been doing this for this long. And for some people it's great. And it's not that that doesn't make a difference in the world, but that's when I started thinking about, okay, like how do I want to try to match my interests and skills up in a way that would make the most positive difference. Um, and you know, that sounds really lofty. Like I'm doing something. I think everybody does this in their own, own little way, but that's kind of how I've done it. Where did you go from there? Did you know that professorship was the path that you wanted to follow? Or did you just take one little step to see where it would lead to next? Uh, well, my dad's a professor. And um, it's funny, but it, this isn't a situation where 
he was saying, oh, you should be a professor. I mean, there was never any of that. In fact, I don't, I mean, I don't think my parents ever once suggested that they thought I would be good at that. Um, I think they, but I, but at least I knew it was an option, right? It's like, mm-hmm. here's this person who I'm seeing be a, a good person while being a professor and having a family and, you know, living a respectable life and seems to enjoy his life. So, so certainly that helped. Um, and then, a big thing for me, and I guess a lot of people don't know this because I didn't know it, and my dad's a professor, was that like doing a PhD in engineering and the sciences at least doesn't actually cost money. I mean, you you get your school paid for, and then oftentimes you get an assistantship of like you know it's thirty thousand dollars a year now, so it's not like you're getting rich. But I was I had this cost-benefit analysis in my head where I was like, I'm going to have to, if I want to do a PhD, I would have to put out four more years of tuition and not make any money. And that was just made it financially not viable. But as soon as I realized that, oh, geez, you can like do a PhD and not go into debt, that then it became viable. And I thought that the first thing that I thought I would really like was teaching. I've always liked working with, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, just teaching. And, um, the the research was kind of the unknown and that's really the biggest part of the job and it, it's like creating knowledge what a ambiguous term and how do you know if you're actually going to like that and I had done a bunch of you know I've been exposed to research the same way a lot of people are exposed to research in a chemistry lab in high school and you know maybe you see some professor doing something in college um, but I didn't know the, the range of research that was out there and so that was kind of the leap of faith that I took going back from my PhD it was like boy I hope I like research and I pretty quickly <laughs> figured out that I did I mean it's just it's really awesome to be able to say oh here's like something that I think is interesting and needs to be explored and then be able to spend the time doing that. It makes it so that you don't get, um, you know, speaking of kind of working at the limits of your abilities, you're always trying to figure out something new, which I think lines up really well with my personality. So, so I took, I mean, the, the leap that, to get back to your question, the leap was going back for the PhD. And after, I mean, I was two months into that and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the right career for me. Um, and you know, that, that basically tells you what your lifestyle is going to be like, right? It's like, okay, you can do teaching and research and then, but they're still figuring out what the research will be about, which, you know, that's something that is constantly evolving. Yeah. How did you begin to figure that out? What it is exactly that you wanted to research and spend your time on? Well, I start, I, uh, (laughs) I just defaulted into engineering, right? So I did, I was, like I said, I was really interested in soccer going to college. I picked the college. I thought I might want to do engineering. So my college selection criteria was it has to have engineering, um, so that I can do it because if you don't do engineering to start out, it's really hard to switch into it. And then, uh, and then it's like, where's the best place that I can start right away <laughs> on the soccer team? So that's how I picked a college. And then I just stayed in engineering for four years um, and had an engineering degree, which has served me really well. But uh, I, I, was, it, it's, I was using it as a multi-purpose degree that I could kind of do anything with, whereas a lot of people are like, I want to do engineering because I'm really excited about designing bridges or designing buildings or something like that. Um, so I had this degree and I, uh, so that's what I did my PhD in was architectural engineering is basically all the engineering that goes into buildings and mm-hmm. started to merge that with the 
the social and environmental issues that I'm interested in. So, you know, um, climate change being one of them. And I, I learned that uh, there was a point, I guess, when I was thinking about research where I was like, if I really want to address climate change, I'm going to have to get out of, you know, civil engineering or this interest in the built environment. And then I realized that, or I learned that buildings use as much energy as cars and airplanes combined. And contribute as much to climate change and we know how to do better buildings that don't use as much energy so it's like oh i can do this without totally shifting fields i can i can work on creating a more sustainable built environment and then after i worked on that it you know you see that the tech technological solutions are there and oftentimes they're not very tech you know not as high tech as you think. Of course, there's solar panels and, you know, fancy windows and stuff like that. But a lot of the stuff we can do in the built environment is just, okay, orient your house the right direction or, um, you know, have really great insulation or, uh, uh, there are these passive houses that are all throughout Europe. And I think in pretty much every state in the United States that heat and cool without, uh, mechanical system just from the from the sun so it's like we know how to do this the and a lot of the challenges are the are the mindsets when you when you think about it with sustainability and so that's when i started to get really interested in the mindsets and that's what kind of brought to the um to the most recent book which is about like why we think about subtracting uh or why we don't think about subtracting more as a way to to make things better so that's kind of been the evolution of my career so far although i still think there'll be i'm sure there'll be more evolutions from here the book is called subtract the untapped science of less and you just mentioned how you started thinking about that that mindset and the book is very much about this this mindset of why have we always been more apt to add things to right. whatever it is that we're doing than to think about what we could take away do you remember the moment when you thought you might have a book on your hands or even if it wasn't going to be a book that you wanted to go further down this road of research into the untapped science of less uh I, there's one moment. It was definitely the this moment when I was playing Legos with my son Ezra, who was three at the time, and we were building this, uh, basically trying to build a bridge, and the bridge wasn't level. And so I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, he had removed a block from the longer column. And you know, for so what he did in that moment was subtract to make the situation better. And like I said, I'd been interested in this, you know, the built environment embodied in the Legos in that moment, but um, also just take oftentimes taking things away as the more sustainable thing. And what had happened in that moment was I had overlooked subtraction as an option. Um, so the bridge, and it was also a really useful example because it, it gave me a way to describe it to other people because I've been mm -hmm. kind of hemming and hawing about the idea for a long time that, oh, like minimalism and there's obvious, and there's a lot of stuff out there too about minimalist design and um, and these different philosophies and um, and this helped me focus in on something number one that could actually be studied but also on the action right it's like I, what I wasn't interested in actually was less at this end state I was actually interested in how how we're getting there it requires us to take something away to get to this end state of less and 
Um, and that bridge helped me focus on the action. It also gave me a really great example of the action that I could carry around and show to people. And so one of the people I showed it to was my friend Gabe Adams, who is a co-author on the paper that we ended up writing about this. And, um, and I thought she would totally get the grid, the bridge problem <laughs> because she's a genius. And I'd been talking to her about this idea, I thought, and, uh, and so I give it to her and she added like I did. And then she goes, oh, 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 what you're talking about is why we don't subtract to make things better. Um, and that make things better. And I was like, yeah, but but that make things better and being really explicit about that was a big difference for her and for describing it to other people. Because, I mean, it that is the that is the issue, you know, when we're trying to make our our writing better when we're trying to make the the built environment better when we're trying to make our, our running training program better why is it that our first instinct is to add things um and only subsequently do we think to take things away and um yeah so i, I think the bridge is definitely where it started and i think that word better is so important it seems obvious but i think it gets overlooked because i think about minimalism and when a lot of people typically think about minimalism it's just less right and that's it um and for me the evolution from minimalism was to actually it was greg McEwen's book called essentialism yes and yeah. the the premise of that is less but better right. and i was like huh that is not an insignificant distinction like less but why so that you're you know, a better runner so that the building has better integrity to it. I mean, so on and, you know, so on and, and so forth. Why does that aspect of it often get overlooked, the better part of things? Um, I don't, I mean, I think one is that it can take more work, uh, right? And so it's like, yeah, you can be a minimalist just by not getting a lot of stuff, right? And that's fine. It's not a, it's not bad to have less without having added first. But so many of these situations that we're talking about, right, if you want to create the perfect running training program that's like stripped down and doesn't have too much extra stuff in it, to do that, you have to know what the extra stuff would be, right? You have to have created this additive program and then said, then not stopped. You said, okay, I've got something that's good enough, but now I'm going to subtract to make it even better. And so that's actually harder. It's, it's more phys like more steps to create that thing. It takes more time to create that thing. It takes more time to polish your piece of writing from you know, 200 words that gets the point across to 150 that gets it across just as well, but doesn't take as long to read. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's more work. And I think that's one reason it doesn't, doesn't get used and that, or doesn't, uh, we don't often think about subtracting as a, as a way to improve. Um, and then the other way that we found in our research, it's like, so it makes logical sense, right? That this is more work just in terms of the number of steps. But what our research ended up showing was that it's more mental steps too, right? And so the reason why I overlooked it working with Ezra's bridge and, you know, we have tons of experiments to do this and it was on the cover of nature, which is like the pinnacle of my academic career. So the, I mean, the science is all there. I won't bore you with it now, but the, the punchline is, when we think about trying to improve something, our first thought is what, what can we add? It's not that we can't think of what to take away. It's just that our first thought is what can we add? And when we make mistakes is when we add something and move on without even considering what we can take away. So we can consider what to take away, but you have to, 
you have to think past your your first instinct. So it's more thought and it's a little bit it's more thought and it's more steps. And I think those are probably two of the main reasons why we don't associate it with improvement. There's a lot that I want to dig into there, but how much of our tendency to add to something is tied to the breakneck speed at which we as a society attempt to move through life? Like I'm I'm thinking about like when you want to take away from something, as you just described, it takes a lot more time and consideration than what you would add, which almost seems to be, you know, an afterthought, mindless. Like, yeah, just add, yeah. you know, add this to it. Um, like, why, you know, why is that? Why do we think that way? So that, and that's the problem, right? It's like you would, I've had this question, um, actually Brad Stolberg asked me on his podcast and I whiffed on the answer because it's, it's so counterintuitive, even though I was writing a piece about it at the time. It's, you know, and he's like, well, surely when you get like overloaded, maybe that would be a time when you think about subtracting more. And in fact, it's the opposite. The more, <laughs> the more stuff we have on our plates, the more we kind of ride with these mental defaults, right? So, um, where we're overloaded, we've got a lot of stuff to think about and we just go with what our instinct is for the, you know, whether to add or subtract. And so we end up adding even more, which makes us more overloaded, which keeps like tying into this cycle. Um, the yeah. experiment that we have that speaks to that, it's, it's a kind of a fun one. We have, we created these grid patterns as one of the ways we tested adding and subtracting. And, you know, you could be, you could solve the grids by adding or subtract, adding blocks to them or subtracting blocks from them. Um, and adding took more clicks than subtracting did. But then we, we had a version of the grids where, and people overlooked subtracting with the grids, uh, about half of the people. And then we created another version where in addition to trying to solve the grids, they had a scroll of numbers going across the bottom of the screen at the same time. And every time a five went by, you had to press a key on the keyboard. And so basically you're just distracting people. And this is something that you know, behavioral scientists are really good at, uh, and do a lot in their experiments. Um, and what happened when people were distracted is they became even more likely to overlook the simpler subtractive option. And so like what you're describing Mario is something that happens in our lives is something that was also happening in the experiment. And so the, the more we have to think of, the more we add, which means the more we have to think of. So we got to figure out ways to break out of that cycle. Yeah. It's, this is like really, really fascinating to me before we got on the mic here, I was telling you how I mentor a lot of young coaches mm -hmm. and they'll have me look at training programs that they've written for athletes or even athletes who are self-coach will have me look at their training programs and just let them know what I think. And, and more often than not, the question they ask me is, what am I missing here? Like, what do I need to add to <laughs> the program? It, it's yeah. like, it's almost like without fail. And I always go back to them like, well, let's think about what you need to take away. And that ends up being like a really anxiety inducing exercise. And I've never been able to understand why. But the other part of it is that just takes time. Like you've got to spend time with it and sort of like sit with that discomfort and sort of like think your way through. Whereas it's a lot quicker to add something to it and move on to, you know, the, the rest of your day. And it just seems like people don't want to spend that time thinking about how subtracting in that situation could actually help lead them to a better result. Yeah. 
Um, I want to ask about the anxiety, but uh, like what provokes the anxiety, but also point out that, I mean, it takes time and it also takes expertise, right? They're coming to, mm-hmm. to you um, and you have a lot of expertise in this area, but also extern, like it's a, you aren't as invested in their ideas as they are, right? And this is why professional editors help with writing because I can subtract a certain amount of stuff from my work and then they can notice things that I wouldn't have even noticed that I kind of fell in love with. And then they say, well, you know, this would actually be better without that. Um, so, so you're, you're playing a part there too, but, um, what, what's the anxiety about? Um, I mean, it makes sense, but I think there's a lot of reasons for the anxiety, but I'm curious what it's about in this case. That if they're taking something away, that it's not furthering them along their path. Like there's almost, it's like a block, I guess. Like, okay, in order to get faster or Mm -hmm. to finish this long race, this happens a lot, mostly with my ultra distance athletes too. You know, ultra athletes, when in doubt, add, add more add more mileage, you know, add, add harder workouts because the race is really long. So of course I must need more in order to complete this really long race when more often than not, I'm scaling back a lot of their, their volume of subtracting some of it. You know, Uh we're not going to go out and do an eight hour day on the trails. We're going to cap it at like five, but what I am going to, you know, add or tweak into the mix is, you know, hill repeats midweek so that we can get your, aerobic engine stronger that's actually going to help you get get fitter so i almost feel like with with endurance athletes because these events are so long there just seems to be this natural connection between like well if i'm training for this this long race like i must just need to do more um and thinking about what you could actually take away to help you achieve a better result really increases anxiety because it's kind of counterintuitive to the end goal, right? Like, no, I must have to do more because this thing is so long. I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's sort of oh, the that genesis total of sense. it for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's just so much going on there. And it's funny how this is the first time I've talked about it in the context of running training programs. Um, <laughs> and I can get to my personal example of that in a second, but it, it mirrors exactly with, you know, how it would work in business consulting, for example, mm-hmm. right? It's like, okay, you're a consultant and you're getting paid to do something and you you want to show the people who are paying you to do something that you've done a lot of work and um, all else being equal it makes sense to just like kind of produce a lot of information um it's there's kind of safety in that right you won't you yeah. can't be you can't be criticized for not doing enough right if somebody overtrains and then bombs on the ultra it's like nobody's going to say well you didn't do enough miles but if somebody under trains, I guess you could feel like, oh, well, that was because you were lazy um, or that, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's, I, I, it makes a ton of sense why you would feel that way. Um, I think one thing that's been helpful for me, and again, I'm not doing ultras and uh, that's a totally different mindset, but it, just in my training it is the continuing to remind myself of the whole thing where like, oh, your body recovers best or you you know recovery is a huge part of your training right to for this that workout that you did yesterday to kick in you actually need to have a day off in between and mm-hmm. and i think you know partly getting older but partly just like learning more about that has made me more confident doing it and i think i like one thing i feel like i've been really good at doing recently i think maybe after reading the book is i've kind of fra- or writing the book is uh framing these um posit- these 
these days off or the the light days in a much more positive way where it's like mm-hmm. before when I did a light day it's like uh, I didn't really do much but now I'm like today's like a light day for me and when I get done with today I'm gonna be like all right I made it through my light day because I actually don't like them um right it's like the fun days most runners the, don't yeah <laughs> the fun days are the days where you can go out and feel like you really did something but so now I'm like, okay, I, I did it. I got, I managed to do my light day this week and um, kind of frame that in a more of like a accomplishing something way, which is, is helpful for now. But um, anyway. No, it's huge. I mean, I do a lot of that with my own athletes because if I schedule a rest day for them or a lighter day where they're running less mileage, maybe they're cross training, but it's not you know, a typical day in terms of volume or, or intensity, uh-huh. a lot of them instantly think of it as a punishment. I'm taking something away from them. Right. Um, yeah. and as a, as a, as a punishment, like, no, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is a part of training. Like by taking, you know, some miles back or taking just some stress off of your body, it's actually going to allow you, as you just described to recover better. And then you can take more energy into your next workout. You can actually get more out of it. So yeah, maybe like we are taking away, but it is, in order to, again, back to the goal we talked about before, help get you to a, a better place. And I think being able to frame it in that way mm-hmm. has helped me to successfully get them to buy in on that. Um, because I, I do think, I don't know if it's just the way a lot of runners or endurance athletes are, are wired, but the real dedicated ones, when you, you take something away, they almost take it as a, you know, as a punishment. Um, you know, I, I think about it as like, you know, a little, a little kid, right? If they get in trouble, you take their toy away, right? And they're like, I'm in trouble and being, you know, I'm being punished. And it's not, it's not too different. Um, but I've, I mean, I've fought that battle with like a a lot of athletes, but the framing is important. If you're like, no, 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 this isn't a punishment from your training. This is a part of your training. It's actually going to help make you better. They can actually see the value in it. And I think that's, I think that's such a huge thing. And, before I hand it back over to you, the, the last part I want to pull out of that, and I hadn't thought about this before, but the business consultant analogy, and I think about it from just the business side of, of coaching people who are doing this professionally right. and they work with one-on-one exactly. clients, they're like, well, this athlete is paying me you know, a few right. hundred dollars a month for coaching. I've got to show them how smart I am, or I've got to show value in the amount of verbiage that I, I write right. for their workout or the amount of workouts that, that I give them. And I've, I've, ma- I've made that mistake as a young coach. That's what I would do like early on when I was trying to establish myself and I didn't have quite that confidence. I would, I would overcoach. I'd overprescribe. And I've learned over time that, you know, actually like the, the clearer that I can be, the more specific that I can be, the way that I assign things, which more often than not involves like taking stuff away, the more effective I've been as a coach and the better results the athletes have seen. Yeah. It's funny because one of the consulting companies I was just talking to about this, they mentioned that when they were just starting out the exact same thing as you, it's like, nobody knows us. So we've got a we've got to produce right and but now that you know people know mario and you've got this reputation you can they know that you know your stuff and that when you come in with like a stripped down training plan it's it's not that you don't know anything it's that you've considered everything and this is the best um and they were kind of at that same point in their evolution where it's like they could rely on their reputation quite a bit more and be able to then feel much more comfortable bringing these stripped down plans and just focusing on the things that were, were really important. Um, so I don't, I don't know how, what that tells us about how to get over it when you're just starting out because, but it is true that, um, well, 
I don't know. The, the the science there is that like we we like to show competence, right? We like right. to show that we're accomplishing something, and this is one of the reasons that adding is easier than subtracting because it's you know when you add something, there there is visible evidence of your competence, whether it's a you know a Lego block or whether it's a um a new workout written on the training program that's evidence to show for it yeah you have something to show for it and subtracting definitely has a noticeability problem you take it away and it's not there so you've got to somehow make it visible which which i'd point out that you're doing right when you Mm -hmm. when you highlight these off days and you say this is an essential part of your training program so it's not that there's nothing there it's that there's something very important there that you need to execute as the athlete well, I'm glad there's science to back because in my own experience and then just my observation working with younger coaches, I mean, I have to tell a lot of them, I'm like, look, you're you're like over-prescribing because you are trying to use that as a way to get over your own insecurity, like trust your stuff um, right. and think about like what is, is really important, what is going to help the athlete to get to that next level and then try and, and cut the rest of that away, which it sounds really easy when I, when I describe it in that way, but, um, it's a really hard thing for, for a lot of coaches. And I think just a lot of people in general and other aspects of their life to really, um, understand and execute on. Yeah. I mean, a simple hack there is that you can show, you can kind of walk people through your reasoning process, right? I mean, here's, here's the 10 pages of stuff that I considered that's not in your training program, right? So, um, and when I give a presentation, for example, the same tendency in a presentation to put all the stuff there to show that you didn't like half-ass the presentation, um, and that you actually know stuff. But at the same time, if you put all this information in a presentation, nobody's going to understand any of it. So you strip down the presentation, just give them the main points and then give them a 10 page handout of the, the, of the other stuff that didn't make it into the presentation. Doesn't really matter, but shows that you, you know, your stuff. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's some value there in figuring out how you can, as a new coach, present these more streamlined plans, but also not give off the impression that you don't know what you're doing and and show that in fact, this is a really deliberate, uh, deliberately crafted subtractive approach to making better runners along these lines we've talked a lot about subtraction and and the benefits of it but Mm -hmm. one thing that you try to be really clear on in the book and and is definitely worth talking about right now is that subtraction is not the only way it's overlooked (laughs) right Um, and more people should take a closer look at it to see how it could potentially take them to a better place. But it's not just better than addition. Um, There are going to be cases where adding something actually makes sense. How do you just explain that to to people when they see the, the title of your book, it's subtract the untapped science of less. And if they don't do the deep reading to understand like, okay, it's not just about you know, taking away, taking away, taking away to get to a a better place, but actually just being, I think, more, more considerate of, of what you do add, or maybe 
you know, subtracting everything away so that you can eventually add, which will help get you to a better place. I don't know if that comes across as, as really confusing, but I, I hope you can understand like where I'm coming from with that question. Oh, totally. And I'm so glad you bring it up because I do. I mean, I spend so much time talking about the subtracting part of it because adding is everything else, right? That's everybody else is talking about adding all the time. Um, but I totally agree. I, yeah. A point that I try to make is well as possible in the book is that it's add and subtract that these are um, complementary ways to make things better again back to the kind of fundamental place that this applies is anytime you're trying to change something whether it's a lego bridge or a training program or a you know your daily schedule anytime you're trying to change something from how it is to how you want it to be you've got these two basic options and i i'm if I had to only pick one for the rest of my life, I'd probably pick adding. <laughs> but it, I think it's a real shame when we're systematically overlooking one of these basic options, which is taking away. I, and I also think that the fact that we are we've systematically overlooked it for a long time means there's probably um, potential there to to add more or to to subtract more because we haven't taken advantage of it. And then the and I think there's also a, you know, this is obviously, we don't have uh, experimental research backing this up, but I think it's, there's like a logical case to be made that adding has been really helpful throughout our history, right? When you don't have, a, um, when you don't have any forms of shelter, you know, building a, a house is a good way to have shelter when you don't have a, a, infrastructure system you want to add roads you're not thinking about like creating road diets to <laughs> manage traffic better um and it's the same with your running right when you don't have the most you can run is one mile then adding to your training program is a pretty good way to start to right. like build up how how well you're doing um and so uh, in in all of these cases it's like adding has served us well in the past uh and so I think that's another reason why it's another re another likely reason why it comes to mind more quickly um, is because, hey, we've people who have added have been well served and have been able to pass down their genes. Again, that's not something we've proven with experiments, but that's a, a valid theory, I think. Um, so anyway, uh, it's add, add and subtract. And I, the last thing I would point out there is that uh, there's another... If we can start thinking of them as complements, uh, we steer around this an another potential block is that you think of them as in complete opposition. Mm -hmm. And um, thinking of things in opposition, it's like add or subtract. It's like then when you think adding first, you think that subtracting is not even an option, right? So when you add the 10-mile tempo workout to your training and it's like that helps your training uh, – you think, oh, well, if that helped my training, then a day off certainly isn't going to help my training because the tempo workout helped. Um, but that's not the the mindset should be that, OK, we tried this additive thing and it helped. Um, I wonder if subtracting could also make things better. And is that something we should consider and, and perhaps try? And, and that either or mindset um, seems to happen a lot with adding and subtracting. And it's the root of that that question that you started with Mario, which is like, oh, people see you recommending subtracting and they think you're anti-adding. It's like, no, I'm right. not anti-adding. I just <laughs> I want to use both. Yeah. How much of all of this is just being more considerate about the decisions that 
we make and thinking a lot of this through. Like if I take away from this, where could it potentially lead me? But also if I take this away now and I add something later, like that's a worthwhile decision or no, it's not in my best interest to take away at this point. Um, I actually like do need to add and feel you know confident that in that decision and and not just you know defaulting one way or the other i think that's the first part of it certainly and um i mean some good news and some bad news one is that it doesn't this isn't one of these things that we can't overcome right we can do it we just need to it takes a little more thought and in fact you know i hope that people who listen to this podcast it's like you're going to help remind yourself that subtracting is an option across various contexts. Um, and, you know, reading my book or listening to my book, it's even more is going to kind of set in that mindset. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is um, it, we don't have really any evidence that it helps across contexts. It's funny that you you were talking, I think this was before we uh, started recording, but about being an editor in the past and now you're, uh, you know, you edit it running training plans is one part of your job. And um, so in that case, this like subtractive job of editing, that mindset is kind of carried over to the running training plans. But we did some experiments. We were trying to find out if people like if you had them do math subtraction, for example, would they then be more likely to subtract on our experiments? And it didn't seem to carry over. So I don't think we can just assume that um, thinking of subtracting in one context is going to make us good at it in another context. Um, so I think, you know, one thing we need to do is make sure we put in place reminders. Um, so as you're thinking about it, which you will be after this podcast is, you know, spend some time thinking about the places that are important where you make important decisions in your life. And can you put in place a reminder now while you're thinking about subtraction to consider subtracting at that time of making the decision? I think for me, like, I don't know when it was exactly, but at some point a light bulb went off and it was that background that I had as an editor where I was like, I just need to start thinking of things like an editor, whether it's training program mm -hmm. or just things that we have around our, our house. Yeah. Um, I think the pandemic was really good for this yeah. because we were stuck at home didn't have a lot of places to go, didn't see many people. And you start thinking about like, okay, like what, what has been like subtracted from my life over the past year or so that now that it has been, I realize I, I don't need. Right. And, mm -hmm. and when I was editing newspapers and magazines, I mean, you would get an article that is going to go into the paper and you have, you know, it's got to be so many words and you think, you know, you think about like, okay, how am I going to get this 750 word submission to fit into a 500 word space? So you have to think about like eliminating the unnecessary, but it's not just that. It's also like, what is, what is going to make it better? And that's how I think about training programs as well. Like I, I'll look at a training program, even one that I've, I've written. And then you just start asking like, okay, does this really need to be here? And that's like what you do, you know, as an editor. And I feel like many of us in, in our own lives can take that mindset into different things and just just think about like okay does this does this really need to be here or is it missing something that i that i do need to add and that i think helps get you out of that either or mentality and it can be like both and type of situation yeah exactly 
Um, we need to study editors. We haven't gotten around to that yet. We've we're not. This isn't even a joke. I mean, we've been literally spent time looking for like conferences of editors so that we could go and and test them. But this was right as the pandemic was happening, and there haven't been as many conferences. Um, and just to see if editors are better at subtracting, um, in in other cases, and. I, and then I think, you know, we, we just talked a lot about thinking about it, right? And But then some of the other issues, right, with the, the new running coach, for example, who might know that a, that a program with less on it is actually better. They might think of it and then decide not to do it because they're not mm-hmm. confident or not – they're afraid they're not going to be able to display their their skills if they – if they have the subtract, if they follow, if they follow through with the subtractive thing. So I th- there are barriers to thinking about it. Um, and that's what our research pointed most closely to, but the book also talks about these other reasons why you might think of something, but then not choose it. But you can test as well, right? Like I do this with training, right? If I take something away and yeah. like we, we go through it for a few weeks to a few months and it, it didn't work. I'm like, okay, well something was clearly missing, right? Then we can adjust and, and add something in if we, you know, if we need to, or maybe we need to take more away in, in some cases. And I think that can get lost when a lot of these decisions get made because it's like, okay, we're going to just take away or we're going to add and then move on. with it. it's like, no, it's, it's also this constant, process of of testing out afterward if that actually you know made things better and if it didn't then like what adjustment do you make next yeah that's so great too and it reminds me also of like for some reason it seems like if you add and it doesn't work it's like okay you just change it but if you subtract and it doesn't work it gets blamed on the subtraction Mm -hmm. um and so like that testing works in both directions but it's totally true that um the (laughs) it's less likely to be done with subtracting and subtracting is more likely to get blamed if, if something doesn't work out, but it, it is, it's a terrific example of the bus- going back to the business consulting. One of the, a suggestion might be like, Oh, take out every other meeting, right? So we're meeting weekly. Let's try meeting biweekly. And it's the exact same thing. Yeah. It might be a disaster, but it might also cut your meeting time in half, you know, so, so try it out. If it's not working after a month, then you can go back to the way you used to be doing it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so these things don't have to be permanent changes. I'll tell you what made me think of that, and it's relevant to this audience, is running shoes. So okay. in the running shoe industry, in the past several decades, I mean, the shoes just got you know, bigger and, and heavier um, and crazier looking. Mm-hmm. Um, companies were adding overlays to shoes. They were adding you know, more to the midsole. You know, more color support structures to prevent, you know, overpronation and, and injuries. And then when Born to Run came out, yeah. Chris McDougall wrote about the Taramara and barefoot running and how they weren't injured. I mean, there was just this tidal shift in the industry. Like minimalist footwear was all the rage. Every company, you know, came out with something that mimicked barefoot running or was like, you know, barely a shoe that you would put on your feet. Mm-hmm. And and it, it was just, it was crazy to, to kind of see. And what ended up happening is in a sport that already had very high injury rates, like more people were getting injured because they were going from one extreme, like wearing these kind of big shoes that they were used to, um, to something super minimalist and, you know, they weren't ready for it. So, so they got hurt. And then what happened 
you know, a few years after that is things kind of came back more toward the middle. The shoe companies started adding a little bit more in. Let's make the midsoles like a little bit thicker. Maybe right. they'll be a little bit lighter as we use new materials or we don't have to use quite as many, you know, overlays. And I mean, injuries are still a big problem in running, but it's it was interesting. It's been interesting to just watch like how, you know, shoes have evolved from you know, the the more that's on a shoe, the more expensive it can be, the more that it can do for you to going like to the opposite end of the spectrum where it was like, you know, super minimal. They're still really expensive, but, you know, yeah. super minimal um, in terms of their, you know, their construction. And now we've kind of come back to the middle and a lot of shoe companies are thinking about, okay, we still need to make shoes that offer the right amount of support for runners, but how can we do that? without like going over the top like what's the least amount of shoe that we can make for someone who needs that kind of stability and i i think that's actually led to you know much better product today so i mean in, in asking that question that's sort of like the example that that i was thinking about was like you know trying this out for one reason or another and then realizing oh that wasn't a good decision and then you know getting to a place where it's like oh well ultimately this ended up you know with some subtracting and then adding back we got to a place that is better than where we were before I, yeah a couple awesome i mean that's such an amazing illustrative example because you know the you could make the case that the the massive subtraction that happened with the barefoot running craze uh, started people thinking add and subtract. Um, it, it, it started me thinking add and subtract, not in, not in terms of designing running shoes, but at least in terms of <laughs> purchasing running shoes, right? I mean, I, I've, I've run in everything from like the Brooks Beast to the, and then after the, um, that, the barefoot running i had whatever new balances version of the barefoot running shoes were and then the minimus like, yeah yeah the I, I actually really love that shoe <laughs> i liked it too and then but then i got injured and uh i mean probably because i was running too much combined with like the whatever the that shoe and um and then have settled back into something that is basically i feel good about myself because it's what you just recommended which is like the minimal the minimum that can kind of keep keep me safe so it's had it's had me thinking about adding and subtracting as different ways to improve my running shoes i really like um i really like that example to bring the conversation back to your book specifically it's divided into two parts first part is seeing more the second part is sharing less and i'm curious why did you break it up in that way my editor told me to. <laughs> no. um, yeah, and I think, you know, we there's the the first part of the book is like, how do we. Um, and I, I think it was a good suggestion by the editor, by the way, I agreed with it. So all of my conversations with the editor were dialogues, not, you know, dictations, but um, for prescriptions. But the so the first part of the book is like building up why this is a problem and i think part of the reason we don't subtract more is we don't fundamentally understand all the reasons why it's hard we don't fully appreciate all the reasons why it's hard we don't appreciate that we don't think about it we don't appreciate that hey you can think about it and then you still don't choose it because you're not showing competence you can we don't appreciate that it's you know there are some very real economic forces at play here right that's chapter four of the book and describes a lot of the running shoe innovation for example um you know one reason is they think this is actually making the shoes better another reason is they need to sell the next year's version of shoes and one way to make them different from last year's version of shoes is to add something um this is you know obviously not a problem that's limited to running shoes and so uh 
that's the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book, after kind of building up all these reasons why we don't subtract, is like, okay, how how can we do better? What can we learn from situations like the, you know, the barefoot running craze uh, or... Um, people, editors, uh, book editors, music editors, uh, who, who have been able to strip down and make things better. You know, the same editing principles that apply to, to the written word also apply to graphic display of information, for example. So like, what are some of these best practices for, for taking away that can, can help us as we, um, move forward in our lives? Last question. Since that day when you were playing Legos with your son and you saw that he took a piece away to make the bridge level and that leading to you working on this book and diving deep into the research, how have you subtracted things in your own life to make it better? I think the best thing that I've done is stop kind of spontaneous email and social media checking. Um, so by spontaneous, I mean not planned. Uh, so I, yeah, certainly there's a value to email and Twitter for me anyway. Um, and, but not looking at it when I, um, don't, I look at it once in the morning and, and once at night, for example, and not looking at it those other times. Uh, I think that was a, a helpful subtraction for me in my own life. Um, also, as it applies to my my working out, I've definitely I think writing the book has helped me think more about okay how can subtracting be helpful to my health and to my um, you know longer term goals of running the boardwalk in under thirty minutes next <laughs> summer. <laughs> so uh, the that is another way that it's helped. Um, physical things, it's been hard. I mean, we added a my son's grown from three to seven, and my daughter came into the world and she's two and a half now. So it's been hard to not add physical things to our lives. But um, I think we still try to do a good job with that. But we definitely have more Legos than we had when when the story happened. Well, Lydie, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's a bit different from the ones I typically have for this podcast. The book is called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. I definitely recommend checking it out. And I thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me, Mario. This is a lot of fun. I uh, appreciate you having me on and I appreciate your listeners listening to me. All right. Thank you so much for listening into the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. Go to tracksmith.com slash Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use their code Mario15 at checkout to save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, but they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your purchase couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales 
Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.